Well, welcome to The Grove. I'm so glad that you are joining us today. And we are in week four of a sermon series this Lent as we walk through the Gospel of John. Now, what we've been doing over the last several weeks is looking at stories that help us understand who Jesus was and who he is calling us to be and what is he calling us to do. And today we're going to look at a story that I think uh, has largely been misunderstood. You see, there's oftentimes stories in Scripture that become a little more popular, a little more famous. They get a little more coverage and are preached on more often than other stories. And this is definitely one of those stories that as we talk through it, you might have a general understanding and have already come to some conclusions about what this story means, what it's trying to say, and the point of the story. This is kind of the impression and the thoughts and feelings that I had about this story long before I started to dig into it. I've actually preached on this story many times before, done Bible studies over this story, and I have always kind of come to the same conclusion about it. And then this week in my preparation for this message, I I realized that I think I might have missed the entire point of this story and that it's saying something far more profound uh, than I ever gave it credit for. I read it too simply. I read it too literally and too practically. And I think that it's this beautiful uh, example and illustration of a primary dynamic and a primary challenge that we all experience in our life. And so we're just going to dive right in this morning as we kind of dig into this story. We're going to be in the fourth chapter of the Gospel of John. And this is how it picks up in verse 3. It says, Jesus left Judea and started back to Galilee. But he had to go through Samaria, which isn't true. And all of the hearers of this story would have known that if you're wanting to go from Judea to Galilee, you actually don't have to go through Samaria. You could go around Samaria and there would be reason, good reason for Jews to kind of want to skirt around and not go through Samaria, which we'll see here a little bit later. So Jesus decides to go through Samaria and he comes to a Samaritan city called Sychar near the plot of ground that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there and Jesus, who was tired out by his journey, was sitting by the well and it was about noon. Now, in the Gospel of John, the writer gives all of these details that are not frivolous. They're not irrelevant. He's not being paid by the word. These details mean something. And so he's trying to paint a picture to help us understand all of the implications and all of the dynamics in this story, in this you know, scenario that's about to take place. At that moment... A Samaritan woman came to draw water, which was uncommon at the time. Typically, people go draw water when it's cool, either early in the morning or later in the evening. And so it's a little strange that at high noon, this woman comes to the well, Jacob's well, to have an encounter with Jesus. As she comes to the well to draw water, Jesus says to her, give me a drink. Then the Samaritan woman responds and replies to him. She says, now how is it that you, a Jew... Ask of me, a Samaritan woman, to give you a drink. She's acknowledging kind of a well-understood kind of cultural division and a cultural rift between people from Samaria and Judeans. And, it says, and so there's a little kind of footnote in the text that, she, that says Jews do not share things in common with Samaritans. And so immediately we already understand that there are a couple of things that Jesus is doing that are out of kind of the customary norm. He's engaging, a male is engaging with a woman. That's a little uh, unusual. Typically, there's not direct male to female conversation back then. Uh, He's a Jew. She's a Samaritan. They typically don't interact together. And so there's all of these kind of strange, unusual dynamics at play in this story. So she's like, 
Jesus says to her, he says, hey woman, can I have a drink please? And she kind of pops back. She's like, how are you a Jew asking me, a Samaritan woman, for a drink? And then Jesus kind of pops back in retort and he says, listen, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying this to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Now at this point, kind of this is kind of the way that we've typically understood this story, but this idea of living water that Jesus responds back to her is kind of this double entendre. It has two implied meanings and it's intentional use to convey both meanings. Now, if you kind of were with us last week as we talked about Nicodemus, the same concept was used with this term born again, has two meanings, and Jesus is using it intentionally to convey both meanings. The same thing is happening with this word living water. It implies uh, water that is running, water that is flowing, water that is moving. And so you would immediately contrast living water or running water with still water. Now, if you've ever gone camping, if you've ever kind of been in a backcountry or survival scenario, you recognize that the cleanest, the healthiest, the possibly most life-giving water, the one most likely free of infection or contamination or any kind of the funk that you wouldn't want in your drinking water, comes much more readily from flowing water than from still stagnant water. And so this is kind of the implications that the writer is getting at that Jesus is meaning. He says, listen, if you knew who it was who was standing before you, you would come to me and you would ask for living water, for flowing, running water, water that was good to drink, water that would give you life. And also, what Jesus is doing here is implying kind of a more spiritual connotation than just the physical connotation. It's not just that this water is different from maybe still water and that it's moving, but it's also life-giving in a different spiritual sense. It's kind of this eternal water that leads to an eternal quality of life. And again, as we've talked about over and over throughout the Gospel of John, this concept of eternal life is not about time. It's not about duration. It's not about a never-ending life, but it's about a depth and a quality and a richness of life here and now. And so what Jesus is saying to this woman, he says, listen, if you knew who was standing before you, if you could see past the obvious, if you could see past kind of the physical realm, if you understood who was standing before you, you would ask, and I would be able to give you living water, this water that leads to an abundance and a richness and a fullness of life. The woman says back to him, again, kind of caught in the very kind of tangible, corporal, you know, physical realm and world and reality in which she's encountering Jesus. She says very practical questions. She says to him, sir, you've got no bucket and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? I seem to see some problems with the offer that you're presenting to me, Jesus. Like, you don't have a bucket. I don't see any well or any running water somewhere. So where is the source of this water? And then she kind of challenges his authority or his validity. She says, are you greater than our ancestor Jacob, who gave us the well, and with his sons and his flocks who drank from it? And Jesus says to her, everyone who drinks of this water, the water that's coming out of this well, everybody who drinks of this water, they will be thirsty again. And he goes on to explain, but those who drink of the water that I will give them will never be thirsty again. Now, this is kind of a common pattern that we see through, all throughout the Gospel of John. Jesus presents some offering of eternal life to someone. 
But because of their confusion and misunderstanding of the offer that Jesus is presenting, they ask some questions, which then serves as kind of a literary or rhetorical device to give John, through the words of Jesus, an opportunity to explain what it is that he really means and kind of unpack this idea of this offering of eternal life. This is exactly what happens. Jesus says, if you knew who was standing before you, you'd ask for living water, this flowing, abundant quality of life water. And she says, I don't see a bucket. I don't see a well. Are you greater than Jacob who provided this well? Help me understand how you're going to give me this living water. And Jesus says, listen, everyone who drinks of this water from this well will be thirsty again. There are things that you can do to provide for your immediate physical emotional needs. But what I'm offering you is something more profound, more significant, and clearly more lasting. I'm giving you the opportunity for living water that provides abundant life. Because if you drink of the water that I provide you, you'll never be thirsty again. The water that I will give them not only will forever quench and satisfy your thirst, but the water that I will give them will become a spring of water gushing up to eternal life. And so here in this moment, Jesus paints this picture, kind of unpacks and lays out what it is uh, that's being presented to this woman here in this moment that she's clearly struggling to understand. Like he's offering this gift of living water that begins to satisfy the deepest longings of her life, the, the deepest needs, the, the, the ways that she is you know, um, unsatisfied longing for more meaning and substance and significance in her life. And Jesus is saying, once you drink of the water that I offer, it goes well well beyond the physical needs. It provides an abundance. It provides a quenching, a satisfaction of emotional and mental and physical and spiritual needs. And so once you have access to this living water, not only will it quench your thirst, but it'll go on to be a source of continual life a gushing source, a gushing spring of water that constantly leads to more and more eternal life. And again, she's trying to picture some physical spring, some place where she can access this physical water. And this is kind of what's revealed in her response back to Jesus. The woman says to him, sir, give me this water so that I may never be thirsty or have to keep coming here to draw water. Once again, She doesn't get it. She's thinking about the cessation of her immediate needs. She's thinking about how she can quench her thirst in kind of a physical sense. And Jesus is offering her something far more significant and far more powerful. Uh, As somebody who kind of communicates as part of their job, uh, words are really interesting to me. And I love to kind of follow and monitor how words take on new meanings and new shape and new dimensions. And it's kind of come to my attention, you know, fairly recently that uh, the word thirsty in kind of a slang kind of modern cultural context has taken on new meaning as well. Without going into all of the kind of unpacking of it, essentially what the word thirsty can mean when used in a slang context is, is desperation. You're a little desperate, typically kind of in a physical romantic context. If a boy is paying too much attention to a girl, he could be described as thirsty. But what I'm, I find interesting about that idea of the slang of thirsty communicating a desperation, a longing for, an inability to find satisfaction in, I think that's the dynamic that's at play here. This woman is clearly thirsty. She is longing for something to satisfy her desperation, but it goes far beyond the physical. 
And this is kind of what we see next. The moment that she asks for this living water, Jesus takes it to another place. Jesus says to her, go call your husband and come back. This is kind of the setup. And this is where I think most of the time we miss what this story is actually doing. And here's what follows. Jesus says to her, go and call your husband and come back. And the woman answers him, I have no husband. And Jesus says to her, you are right in saying, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands and the one you have now is not your husband. What you have said is true. Now, typically the way that this story gets unpacked is uh, this woman is a woman of ill repute. For some reason, we uh, think that this is a story about a scandalous woman. But nowhere in kind of the text in the scriptures that I just read, is there any implication of scandal? There's no implication of wrongdoing. There's no implication of sin. Jesus doesn't offer criticism or judgment or correction to her. He doesn't say, go and sin no more. These, none of these things are present in the story. But yet this is often kind of the understanding and kind of the thought process and mentality we bring to the story. And so when we do that, when we assume and impose some of these assumptions Upon this text, what it leads us to is Jesus is very kind and forgiving and he provides this woman a chance at a second start. He forgives this scandalous woman who's had a bunch of husbands and she's living with some guy, shacking up with him and he's not her husband anymore and he offers her a new chance. And that, that version of the story has significance and meaning for us and we can understand and infer things about God and what God wants to do for us and forgive us and the grace that he offers that's actually not present in the story. I think there's actually something deeper and more significant available here for us. See, this woman, she shows up to Jesus and he has, she has this encounter with him and she wants to have her immediate kind of surface level physical needs met. She wants to solve her physical thirst. She wants to have access to a source of water where she doesn't have to come and draw water again every day. And by having access to it, she would no longer be thirsty. And Jesus begins to not speak just to her thirst, but to her desperation. And here's what I mean by that. Instead of a scandal being revealed in this conversation between the woman and Jesus about all of her husbands, I think what's actually being conveyed is a sense of tragedy, a, a, sense, a, a series of unfortunate um, events that have happened in this woman's life. You see, the way that marriage worked back then is far different than the way that marriage works now where people um, kind of move in and out of relationships at will. This is not kind of the understanding of how relationships happened back then. So the implication that she's had five husbands and the one that she's with now is not even her husband speaks to this sense that this woman uh, has lost standing. Women didn't have much standing in the first century anyway, but this woman is without a husband, without someone to provide for her, without someone to care for her. And because of that, it's not like she's helpless as a woman, but she's helpless based on kind of the structures and the dynamics that existed in that first century context. She didn't have means or opportunity to provide for herself or to care for herself. And so this is a very vulnerable person in this context of this story. You could imagine not only is she vulnerable just in kind of her physical needs standpoint for someone to provide for her, for her to be a part of a family that takes care of each other, but you can also imagine that this is a woman who's in a place where life does not look like what she planned. There's this sense of loss, this sense of sadness, this sense of mourning and grief over all of the ways that she wanted her life to go, that it didn't. 
all of the failed dreams and the dashed hopes and the broken dreams and expectations that this woman is likely holding because she's had five husbands. And again, we don't know why she's not with any of those five husbands. And the one that she's with now, who's not her husband, we don't know the nature of that relationship. But you can likely infer from the details and the context culturally of this story that this is a woman who's had a really hard life. And she finds herself in a place where she is thirsty and likely unaware of her desperation and her need for living water that Jesus is offering her. And so in this moment, not only does Jesus provide the opportunity for her to ask for the living water, but when she does, when she says, you know, sir, will you give me this water? He then shifts the lens and he begins to speak into her life. He begins to fully see her. He begins to communicate things that he knows about her that nobody else should be able to know, that nobody else could know. And so this, in this moment, you can see how we've shifted from this physical conversation about immediate needs and a physical thirst to this spiritual conversation about the deeper thirst that we have in our life, the deeper longings, the deeper desires, the deeper desperations that we carry in and out of life when life doesn't go the way that we want, when we're holding the pieces of dreams or hopes and we're longing for something more and we don't know how to satisfy those needs. We don't know what to do with the grief and the mourning and the loss of what could have been, what should have been. And we stand there in this place. And in this moment, what we see is a picture of Jesus stepping into this woman's life saying, I see you. I understand what you're going through. I know you fully. With all of the good, the bad, the hard, the difficult that you have navigated in your life. And I am standing before you offering you something more. Offering you something better. Offering you a chance at something that will satisfy the desperation that you feel in your life. The desperation that maybe you feel in your heart that you may may not even be aware of. It goes far beyond just our physical needs. It is easy for us to kind of pray for God to satisfy our physical, but what he shows us again and again is that not only is he willing to satisfy our physical, but he's actually here offering us satisfaction, a quenching of our spiritual thirst and our spiritual need, our spiritual desperation. I think so much of the ways that we live our lives is a a kind of unconscious attempt to meet all of our deeper spiritual needs. And so whether it's through relationships or whether it's through kind of the striving for a perfect life or achievement or success or power or control or security, we go to all of these different wells looking to be quenched in our spiritual life. We may not even be aware that that's what we're doing, but that's what we're doing. And so in this moment, what we see is Jesus offering her satisfaction for her deeper spiritual desperation. And so as Jesus sees her, as Jesus acknowledges all of the hard about her life, all of the reality of her life, Jesus seeing her provides the opportunity for her to see and recognize Jesus. And this is what happens a couple of verses later. Verse 19, the woman said to him, sir, I see that you are a prophet. And then in verse 25, sir, I know that the Messiah is coming who is called the Christ When he comes, he will proclaim all things to us. She's saying, I know that there is something different about you and I am longing and hopeful and expectant for the one who will come and make all things right. 
She acknowledges that there is the possibility for something bigger, more significant, more satisfying to happen in her life on a deeper spiritual level. And in that moment, Jesus reveals himself and he says to her, he says, I am he, the one who is speaking to you. That would have been easily understood as a call back to Moses's conversation with the burning bush when Moses is asking the bush, how can I let the Israelites know that you are the one who is sending me, that God is sending me? And the bush replies back, tell them I am sent you. And Moses again says, but what name should I give them of the God who is sending me? And again, the bush replies, I am who I am. So this is what Jesus is doing. He's doing the exact same thing for this woman. And so This is where I think the whole story kind of pivots and reveals itself. In verse 28, then the woman left her water jar behind and went back to the city. You see, this whole story was about a woman trying to find kind of a quenching of her thirst, a woman trying to find water that will give her life. The problem is she was looking on the wrong level. She was looking on a very physical level and then she has the opportunity to meet Jesus and he offers her satisfaction for her deeper needs, her deeper thirst, her deeper desperation. He offers her living water that satisfies all of the longings, all of the hurt, all of the broken dreams, all of the desperation that she, that she feels, feels in her life. And so this is what the woman does in response to this conversation with Jesus, this realization that he is the one who is standing before her. He is offering her this living water. And she takes the thing that she has spent her whole life collecting water in, this thing that she is holding on to, that she has looked to, to supply her needs in her life. It was this this water jar that she was holding that she would dip into the well, that she would carry back to her house. And this water jar was the source of water the source of life for this woman. And she takes this thing that she's holding on to and she sets it down and she leaves it behind and she goes back to the city. Now there's some interesting wordplay here because you remember this woman comes to the well at noon when nobody else goes to the well. So there's this implied sense of isolation in this woman's life. You can understand this in the context of all of the kind of the broken family relationships that she likely has of having had five husbands and not being with one who is her husband currently. And then you, you know, you compare that and combine that with the fact that she's arriving at the well at the middle of the day when nobody else would have done that. So she's alone in every sense of the word. But once she encounters Jesus, once she experiences this living water that he has available to her, once he lets her know that he sees her and all of her dashed dreams and broken expectations and all of her longing and desperation. She's willing to let go of the thing that she's been holding on to. She's able to leave it behind and she's able to go back to the city, a place that was filled with people. She's able to go back into relationships. She's able to go back into community. She's able to go back into kind of the normal rhythms of life. And so what's interesting to me is to think about if we are that woman, if that woman is a symbol and a metaphor for us, where are the places that we're looking to satisfy our thirst that aren't working? What wells are we going to trying to quench our thirst that are leaving us desperate? What are the places, what are the relationships, what are the categories and areas of our lives 
What are the hopes that we keep returning to, trying to have met, that aren't providing the life that we long for? What are those for us? And then the other question that it, it leads me to ask is, and you think about the water jars that we go to as sources for life that don't provide us what we truly need. What are we holding on to that's holding us back? What are we carrying around? What are we looking to as the source of our life that isn't actually life-giving? You see what this woman does by leaving her water jar behind is she lets go of good in the attempt and the pursuit of better. She lets go of satisfactory for deeper significance and deeper satisfaction and deeper meaning. She lets go of water for living water. So what are our water jars? What are your water jars? What are you holding on to that's holding you back? Where do you keep going looking for life only to be disappointed again and again and again? Maybe it's time that we leave those water jars behind. Maybe it's time that we find a new source for life, a new source for living water. And this is the invitation that Jesus offers this woman and it's the invitation that Jesus offers each one of us. And this is what happens when the woman experiences and receives this living water. The promise that Jesus makes to her in the beginning of the story is that everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but those who drink of the water that I will give them will never be thirsty. They will find satisfaction to their desperation. And this is what we see happen with this woman. But that is not the end of the promise. Jesus goes on, he says, the water that I will give them will become in them a spring of water gushing up into eternal life. And this is what we see happen with the woman next. Looking in verse, at the end of verse 28, the woman leaves her water jar behind. She goes back to the people. She begins to engage in relationships again. And she says to the people, Come and see a man who told me everything I have ever done. He can't be the Messiah, can he? Implying, I think he's the Messiah. And they left the city and were on their way to him. And then jumping down to verse 39, many Samaritans from that city believed in him because of the woman's testimony. And they kind of paraphrase her testimony. He told me everything I have ever done. And he goes on to say, so that when the Samaritans came to Jesus... They asked Jesus to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more people, many more Samaritans believed because of their experience in the words of Jesus during his stay there. And then in verse 42, they said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves and we know that this is truly the Savior of the world. Once we're able to experience the living water that Jesus offers us, we become a spring of living water that others can come and experience living water for themselves. This is the exact thing that happens in the woman's life. She receives the living water that Jesus offers. She leaves her water jars behind because it no longer serves her. It's no longer the source of her life. She has found satisfaction for her desperation and for her thirst. And she becomes herself a spring of living water that's gushing and rushing forth. And people are able to experience her and the way that she's talking about this encounter that she had with Jesus who knows everything about her and yet she's okay, yet he sees her, he knows her, he accepts her. And she begins to share this living water with others and they too come to the source to experience this living water for themselves and their lives are changed in the same way that hers are. Friends, this is the invitation that we find in this story that exists for us today. 
for all of the ways that we are desperate, for all of the ways that we are thirsty, for all of the ways that we look for more in life because we feel incomplete, because we feel unsatisfied, because we feel like life hasn't gone the way that we've hoped it would, that life hasn't measured up to the promise that we believed in. Jesus is inviting us to experience living water. And once we receive it, and once we experience it, we'll be willing to leave our water jars behind and become springs of living water in the lives of other people. And that's ultimately what a church is. It's a collection of people who have become springs of living water who continue to provide this living water to other people. That's my hope for us as a church. That's my hope for each of you that you will come and you will receive and you will ask for this living water and it will turn into a spring of living water in your life because we all need satisfaction to the desperation that we feel. Let me pray for our time together. Gracious God, thank you for today. Thank you for this opportunity to revisit a story that many of us have heard again and again. Help us to see it with new eyes and to hear it with new ears, God. Help us to recognize ourselves in this story and the desperation that we live with each and every day. Help us come to find our satisfaction, the fullness and the completion of our longing. Help us to find that in you, God. Help us to drink of this living water so that we will never thirst again and that we too can become springs of living water for others. We pray this in your name. Amen.